Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by a book I have written called Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon. You can also get the audiobook and get it on Audible. There's probably all sorts of ways you can get it. It's a really good book. I'm proud of it. Check it out. Also, come see me on tour, Rebirth. Very good show. Proud of this as well. I talk about it a little bit in this forthcoming episode. I'm in Leicester on December the 6th, Newcastle, 14th of December, and Brixton on December the 19th. If you want tickets to that, go to russellbrand.com. Now it's time for Under the Skin. Pankaj Mishra is a historian and novelist and is a recipient of Yale University's Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize. Born in North India, his work has appeared in the New York Times, Time, The Guardian and The Independent, and his books include An End to Suffering, The Buddha in the World, From the Ruins of Empire, and his latest, Age of Anger, A History of the Present, which explains how the wider embrace of mass politics, technology and the pursuit of wealth and individualism has cast billions adrift in a demoralised world. Welcome to the show, Pankaj. Thank you for coming. Thanks, thanks for having me. What I know of your work suggests to me that you are addressing themes that have interested us on Under the Skin and driven us, but on a huge scale, you're trying to address the the essence of what we've been trying to tackle on a global scale. Your latest book, Age of Anger, you're talking about rage. That, that this is a sort of this is a time that is determined by rage. Are you saying that this is this is cross culturally, regardless of where you are in this particular economic story, like whether it's like the, the, the collapse of empire that you know and nostalgia that's being experienced in this country or the United States with where rage is feels like a very present emotion, rage and despair. On recent visits to America, I, I, I sort of felt in a, the few public spaces that I was in a, se- a sense of a, a, a society ill at ease with itself. So, like, and I, I've experienced it in these two Western nations, but you're saying in India, is this also a, a modern cultural determinant, this sense of rage? Well, the, the experience of uh, disaffection, or rage, is at this moment truly global, truly common amongst you know nations, regardless of where they are in the so-called you know uh, uh, this 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 particular trajectory of of economic growth. So in the advanced countries as well as the developed world, the developing countries, and so on and so forth. And I think it's because in in a, in a context like the United States, which has enjoyed a great deal of power for a long time, a lot of people feel that uh, the future, and this is an unprecedented shift, would be considerably worse than what they have been accustomed to, what their parents and grandparents, that they are not really passing on Mm. a, a world to their children or to their grandchildren in which they can actually hope to flourish. And this is important, Pankaj, because progressivism is the defining 
attribute, the essence of the story. So once progression stops, once the next generation thinks, hang on a minute, things are getting worse, we're not going to own our houses, we're not going to have jobs, we're already mired in debt, the whole thrust of our national identities is undermined. This is the crux of the crisis. Uh, you know, progress was the substitute, was a replacement for God. This notion of continuous improvement, that was truly radical. When we killed off God, when we moved away from traditional religion, we devised this new belief system that there will be continuous progress. And we have premised our existence on this fact. So, I mean, we must not underestimate the radical shift we are undergoing right now. So I suppose uh, if you're living in a culture that is experiencing continual economic growth and progression, or at least a significant portion of the population are experiencing it enough to maintain the momentum, then there is no need for God, particularly when the idea of God is often uh, demonstrated through ancestor worship. We are like our ancestors. We live like them. That We are connected to this origin myth, this origin story. And through these rituals, we connect to them. This is our relationship with God. We are part of the whole. When you see continual progression, when you see an advancement of mankind, it, uh, uh, and obviously the shifts philosophically that occurred uh, a couple hundred years ago that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, it's very easy to see us as separate from God, God as the idea of originating creator, progenitor. Absolutely. It's a, it's a radical idea. You know, some, someone who warned about this, that progress is a false god. Nietzsche, when he said that God is dead and we haven't faced up to the consequences, this is what he was talking about, that we've given up belief in a transcendental authority. We've given up belief in this God who, who lays down laws, who orders our societies. We have decided to go uh, do it all by ourselves. And we have invested our faith in progress. But this is a false religion. And I think in, in many ways, this moment of nihilism that we see today globally is this realization that this religion is faltering, that there are not enough believers in the religion of progress. This is the biggest shift. This is what I'm really talking about in my book. And that is what I mean, that we need to have a broader framework to understand what is going on today. I mean, there are obviously many aspects of this, um, the economic inequality and of obviously a lot of the rage is fueled by people thinking that their promises have been unrealized, they've been fulfilled, they've been cheated, they've been deceived. Mm. But it's also because they have been promised a great deal, especially in the last three decades uh, yes. of globalization. Presumably when the um, sort of the, the resurgent ethno-nationalism fails to deliver, and I suppose there is a version of ethno-nationalism or at least sort of a, a, a religiously-led ethno-nationalism in India also. When, I suppose when these modalities fail to deliver, there will be further disappointment and further rage. Uh, just to ask you a sort of a personal question, presuming uh, if you grew up in a village in India, I'm guessing you're... You had a small religious, town. yeah, small, small town. town. Yeah. So you had a religious type of upbringing. Do you believe in God, and what kind of religion were you well, raised in? I personally, I mean, I, I think of myself as someone who's been irredeemably secularized in the sense that I cannot be religious in the way my parents are religious. What way were they religious? Well, in, religious in the sense of thinking that everything that happens in the world is due to God, is because there is a hidden, uh, invisible force behind all of it. And, and, and everything that happens can be explained with reference 
to this figure. Now, that is a worldview that I now can no longer enter. But when you begin, when you, when you are in proximity to it, you do realize that the big shift really, um, and, and you see that happening right now, that shift happened here a long time ago in places like India, you can still see it happening, is this shift from a belief in transcendental authority to this belief in progress in material improvement. Isn't that just a different form of transcendental authority? The idea. Well, of... that was that was the mistake a lot of people in the nineteenth century were pointing to Dostoevsky or Nietzsche. That once you bring down the kingdom of God onto earth, you will have trouble. Once you start thinking that what is promised to you in the afterlife can be recreated on earth, when you start thinking in those terms, then you've set yourself up for cruel disappointment. Yes. Also, it seems that we've become quite muddled in our interpretation of myth, it seems to me. Even when I hear the phrase after life, uh, how the resonance of that for me personally is now when my material human life as Russell the individual, when my ego life ceases to be the dominant driving principle for my existence, I will experience, in inverted commas, heaven, paradise, freed from the ego. So that, you know, when I, when I see sort of perennial messages between Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and believe me, I know very little about all three of those theologies, just enough to know that there seems to be an idea of essence. And even the more folkish and uh, I'm assuming less academic understanding that one imagines that your parents may have had, I don't know, your dad could have been a professor of theology, I don't know, but I'm guessing when people talk about religion in sort of quite folkish terms of uh, transcendent authority, a God that's basically governing everything, I can sort of, even, like even with my limited understanding of the mechanics of the material world, I can see a use for that as, a, as an analogy. I can see a use for the idea of supreme or transcendent, hopefully benevolent authority. Well, you know, I mean, it has become hugely fashionable to mock religion or people who are religious as essentially superstitious, ignorant, barbaric. But we forget that religion is a huge source of consolation. It helps people accommodate, um, helps people to accommodate themselves to grief, to loss to disappointment and disappointment mm. is the fate for most people yes and in fact possibly all people i mean because sometimes when it's uh, presented in terms of a consolation like that's sort of a, a sort of a common new atheist uh, argument oh it's for suckers to for consolation but i sort of feel like you are going to die the material world isn't going to make you happy your primal drives are going to be insufficient in making you satisfied your ego is going to let you down everything's going to fail you so you're going to need consolation and so and so as well as consolation it becomes a kind of creed it becomes a kind of purpose it becomes a kind of meaning and i don't think a fabricated one either i think a necessary ultimate essential one whilst i recognize that most uh, religions have cultural accoutrements of their time that are unhelpful prejudicial you know like those are the things that i, I try personally to look beyond 
to the sort of powerful truths beneath them. Now, uh, again, Pankaj, referring to the beginning of our conversation, you said you're very interested in the uh, important shifts in the last couple hundred years philosophically, and we mentioned colonialism and industrialization as two components of that, but I'm interested in the philosophical component. I know you'll talk about Voltaire and Rousseau, uh, philosophers were a little earlier than that, but tell us what their significance well, is. Well, you know, I use these figures to highlight certain contradictions in the modern project, which were apparent before modern societies came into being. You know, in the late 18th century, put it very, very broadly, people uh, in the late 18th century were faced with this large question that, okay, we are moving away from societies, from a world in which the church was important, in which belief in God was important, in which the monarchy was all-powerful. We are moving towards societies where people are going to devise a social contract for themselves, uh, where people are going to use individual reason, where people are going to use the new insights of science to master nature. So these were the big debates happening during the late 18th century, you know, what we now call the moment that we now call the Enlightenment, the two major figures of this, uh, of this Enlightenment were Voltaire and Rousseau. And the debate, the conflict between them emerges because Voltaire is offering a model and a, a, a blueprint for society that we are more or less living in today, which is a society driven by self-interest, hmm. by the entrepreneurial spirit, by self-interested individuals competing with each other using the ideas of science to advance to expand to expand their powers mm. and rousseau who comes from a very different background social background also um, what was the difference well he 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 he's known poverty he's known deprivation um in, in, in his, in his uh, early years. I already like him better. I'm already <laughs> on his side even before I've heard what he's on about. Yeah, I know. He's, he, I learned my philosophy on the streets. The hard way, in knife fights. <laughs> yeah, come on, what's his so he comes, to, he comes to Paris and finds himself alienated by this new world of these you know, philosophers who, who talk to each other, who are very interested in forming alliances with powerful people, including, you know, some of the most powerful monarchs of the day, because they think the monarchs are the right people, you know, a sort of early version of the neocons of today who sidle up to presidents and prime ministers and offer them advice. And, you know, here is what you should do in order to modernize your society. So this kind of rhetoric uh, Rousseau is completely against. And he's talking about human needs, the needs of the human soul. And, 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 he thinks that this society premised on self-interest, on vanity, on imitation, on people trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to imitate the rich, the wealthy, the famous, is a recipe for all kinds of disorders, to use a word we, we uh, uh, brought up earlier, all kinds of psychological disorders. And he's a, he's a sort of acute psychologist of the human soul, partly because he himself is suffering from all kinds of problems, envy being one of them, ressentiment. He wants, what does that mean? Well, it's a sort of compound of emotions, envy, a sense of humiliation, a feeling of powerlessness, 
And it's sort of largely worthlessness. Do you think it might mean a lot of it, a lot of that? And I in fact, I, I mean, that. what I try and argue in the book that we are sort of looking at a global epidemic of resentimo, where large numbers of people feel this emotion, impotently for the most part. And when the moment comes, as it came during Brexit and during during the Trump election, it erupts volcanically. So Rousseau, in many ways, is anticipating the pressures, the intolerable strain this new society premised around self-interest and vanity is going to put on the human soul. He sort of prophesizes, in a sense, that this will lead us to this crisis. It will lead us to a spiritual crisis. Rousseau also he talks about like the noble savage. Is that right? Like is that like the idea that that innately we are connected. That there is that in simple uh, prehistoric or traditional cultures, there is a beauty, there is a grace that human beings will absolutely. Live with. And you know what's what's actually interesting. Uh, what is in fact um, creating this particular image in Rousseau's mind are the discoveries European travelers are making in the New World when they're encountering indigenous peoples in these places. They're bringing back reports of how these societies work. So the whole idea of people living in nature, this is a sort of particular construction that Rousseau, someone like Rousseau, absorbed many, among many other people and, and uses that to critique this new society that is coming into being. You know, compassion, for instance, is hugely important to Rousseau. He thinks the innate revulsion we feel at the sight of someone else's suffering that should be the basis of the social contract. Right, that. Try to use that as a fuel. It's interesting that you talk about these essential bases, that political movements and political moments are somehow ultimately underwritten by inner phenomena or inner frequencies, that Rousseau argues that compassion should be the the basis for our social contracts. And what we're experiencing now, you argue in your book, is rage as the determinant that, or ressentiment, a feeling of worthlessness. And like this for me seems most familiar. And like it, one of my frustrations is to see the way that Brexit has subsequently been packaged by the uh, sort of certainly in terms of the media, the dominant uh, writers of our story, the dom- dominant cultural uh, commentators say, oh, what Brexit means is racism. The ordinary people are racist. And I think that 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 is the kind of reductivism that led to Brexit, I think. I think that what actually has happened is a breakdown between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, that the bourgeoisie are no longer interested in representing the interests of ordinary working people. Ordinary working people have begun to recognise that. And while certainly concerns about migration and racism, how could they not be part of the narrative, given how much those ideas are propagated through mainstream media? Like... I think it's more important than that. I think the shift is between uh, a a middle-class intelligentsia that have abandoned ordinary working people to form a new alliance with the powerful and to demonstrate their radicalism merely through superficial allegiances with identity politics. Identity politics as like, oh, no, well, we're very good on gender rights. We're very good on equality, race without consequence. No longer addressing the key issue of all societies how do we control the powerful how do we confront the powerful how do we bring about equality fairness a society based on the compassion that you said that Rousseau was I think I think I feel it's a huge mistake to judge people who vote for Trump or who voted for Brexit 
as racist. It's counterproductive. Apart from everything else, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's totally wrong. A lot of people who voted for Trump also voted for Obama, uh, the biggest hoax of our times. Um, so... Well, you what say is, that Obama is the biggest hoax of I, our time. I think so. I think so. It's interesting um, because we had a, an academic in here a little while ago, Kahindi Andrews, is a professor of sociology and black studies at Birmingham University, who said that Trump is a, a more authentic or better president for black America than Obama because it no longer conceals submerged inequalities and ongoing racism. So I think, I think Obama idea? was the embodiment of neoliberal chic mm-hmm. and managed to conceal as your other guest said, a whole range of grotesque inequalities through this very seductive personal style he had. Mm. You know, we, we, we're getting on a different subject altogether, but I, I, I think in many ways, Obama and eight years of Obama enabled someone like Donald Trump. Yes. And if you don't see this connection, if we insist on thinking of Donald Trump as someone who just arrived in the United States from somewhere in Mars, mm. we're going to miss this. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's to, in a desperate attempt to continue the neoliberal narrative, Trump is presented as some kind of grotesque anomaly, a product of racism, when he is precisely a product of neoliberalism. He's precisely the end point. Like, how can people, how would a society not have fest, a festering sense of separation and uh, uh, and fear of otherness when we've just experienced 20, 30 years of being pumped up with, like, with anti-Islamic sentiment, sort of like pre-9-11. It's, these stories have been going on for a long, long while. And it's, it feels for me that this moment is simply some someone's just drew, like ridden that wave, a wave that's sort of been created by sort of cyclonic racism and ongoing prejudice. I think, I mean, you know, Trump is the image uh, that we don't really want to confront of us in the mirror. Mm. And it's because we keep thinking of this other era of which most of us, people who write in, in, in who work for the mainstream media, I include myself, are beneficiaries, have been beneficiaries of the system. Our lives, our material lives have improved enormously in the last 20, 30 years. So we have enormous investments in keeping this particular narrative going. And one way of doing it is to say that these people who vote for Trump are deplorables, are racists, (laughs) and that there is something like true liberalism out there. If only people would listen, if only people could understand what is good for them. Instead, they follow their racist instincts and vote for Trump. This is a deliberate misdiagnosis. Uh, This is is a, 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 a real distortion of what has been happening, not just in the United States, but elsewhere. The fact, you know, going back to Rousseau, the promise of freedom with which the modern world begins, freedom from authority, freedom from custom, the fact that for many people this has become hugely, hugely impossible to realize because of the nature of our institutions, the increasing centralization of power, the fact that most people find themselves reduced to cogs in a, in, a, in a vast machine. Most people find mm. very little stability, very little dignity in their working lives. Mm. All this has led to this moment that we are experiencing today. You know, this, this, you know, on one hand, this extravagant promise of freedom, prosperity, and then 
the fact of structural inequality, the fact that mobility is blocked for most people, unless you belong to the right family, unless you belong to the right dynasty, unless you belong, unless you go to the right college. And, you know, and this is not something that I'm saying or a few people are saying. This has now been demonstrated empirically with all kinds of data. Um, the fact that college-educated people have a huge advantage over everyone else, that mobility has been blocked for large numbers of people. So we are looking at a massive dysfunction in which all the founding promises of the modern world look almost impossible to fulfill. It feels like the conditions are correct for genuine radicalism, for real radical change. It seems that there's potential for explosive global change where or do you think that's i mean it's a big question do you think that society is too sectarian too fractured because i'm a public performer i am often and i work you know mostly in this country at the moment i like i'm often in regional spaces of you know with 1500 or a couple of thousand people doing stand-up comedy and one of the things i talk about is how the powerful continually invite ordinary working people to eye one another uh, suspiciously when uh, a, a, as a veil for the actions of the powerful. So, like, I sort of watch people's faces as I say, you know, you will always do what you've always done, blame other people that are basically the same as you, that don't have power for things that only powerful people can affect or change. So, and then in the show I say, fuck Muslims, fuck the disabled, fuck the white working class, fuck the middle class, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, thanks for your vote, see you in four years. And I see that this divides the room. I see that people are uncomfortable in letting go of more immediate senses of... It's, 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 the problem I feel sometimes with the mind is there are certain stories that are easier to believe. There are stories that are more visceral, that relate more to our experience of being human. It's hard to... Concealed power is very difficult to understand by its very nature. It is. I mean, you know, the other... Uh factor is that in the West, in Western Europe and, and the United States, we haven't had mass movements for change for a very long time. You know, if you think about it, the last time we had mass movements, large numbers of people participating in them against the war, for civil rights, feminist movements, these all happened in the 1960s and 70s. So a whole memory of popular participation in politics, of large numbers of people coming together for a particular cause of justice, bonding together, feeling degree of solidarity, that memory has been ex you know, completely expunged. Possibly because of the success of the philosophy that you said Voltaire was exemplary of, that we do regard ourselves as individuals now, that liberalism, it, it means freedom to be an individual and freedom to me, be an individual means freedom to be disconnected and an inability to see your identity is integral to the, the, to the roles, relationships and destinies of people that are basically just the same and as you. And that we live in, in an interdependent society. Yes. That we live in an inter interdependent world. Um, you know, this is something the Buddhists started talking about 2,500 years ago. I, I wrote a book about the Buddha where this theme features a great deal, the theme of interdependence, which the Buddha invoked in order to critique the rising notion of individualism at the time. I mean, this, this, this notion of 
the individual self that has to expand, that has to consolidate itself with all kinds of material advances and, 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 and kind of intellectual growth, uh, which is what has become so dominant, especially in the last um, three decades, a kind of hyper-individualism, which is unconstrained by any institution. You know, mm. That is what has been propagated and also swallowed whole by large numbers of people, which has really frayed so many social solidarities, which has again sort of really uh, destroyed our imagination in some crucial ways, you know, whole ways of acting in the world, upon the world, has been lost to us because of this obsession with individualism. We mentioned uh, and have uh, somewhat framed this conversation uh, within the idea that there is an imposition of progressivism on on former colonised nations by former colonial nations. Another competing, less powerful, but I think still interesting story is the, uh, and an, perhaps a component of Orient- Orientalism, is the uh, romanticization that also comes from sort of, I suppose, Rousseau. Because like, for me, meeting you as a, an Indian man that grew up in a small town and me as a person who's, uh, my body is smothered in tattoos from your great scriptures uh, of figures and icons and gods from your scriptures and is that right? literal texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm smothered in bloody Sanskrit. Krishna's here, oh, wow. Ganesh is here, oh, the wow. chakras are there. Fantastic. I, I, I was smothered in all this stuff. So there's the sort of uh, like this sort of the other component of Orientalism is a sort of a Western fetishization of uh, and possibly uh, reductively of uh, of uh, Hindu ideology or Vedic knowledge and so but do you think uh, that there is a a genuine value that can be useful in a sort of postmodern I think there is you know far too much easy mockery and criticism of people who look to older cultures or or ancient philosophies whether in Asia or elsewhere in Africa or or, or Latin America or, or the Americas because what they are looking for is an alternative mm. to a way of being, to a civilization that feels too much like a trap to them. And I think, you know, people in the 60s who went out to places like India and joined various countercultural movements, most famously the Beatles, and, and there were so many, there were literally uh, hundreds of thousands of people who, who went out there looking for an alternative to this soulless, mechanical society that they were living in, which was at that time in the 1960s engaged in a catastrophic, violent war in Vietnam and indeed elsewhere. So there was a lot of disillusionment back then which made people look for some kind of a spiritual and moral possibility Mm. elsewhere. And I think that impulse is important. That impulse which can mislead, and it did mislead a lot of people, uh, into joining all kinds of crazy sects, um, being conned by various gurus who were just waiting for these gullible people to show up. But I think it's really important to understand why these people went out there. And that it's also important to understand that there is a lot of value. There, is, there are many things of value in these traditions 
these are these this is this is how human beings lived for centuries and centuries we would be foolish to discard the wisdom contained in those traditions and philosophies how do we utilize it do you imagine because uh, uh, of course this is wisdom premised on a very different time on different conditions but i sense that morally and spiritually there's a value in it can it you know like in defiance of the essence of secularism do these spiritual models have information that ought be utilized in the establishment of new social systems in your opinion well, you know someone like the dalai lama who who i rate uh, very highly who is a buddhist but when he goes around the world he insists that he's not really talking about buddhism he's talking about compassion the importance of compassion so he's coming from an ancient religious tradition he's completely immersed in it he's using that language but he's not saying that you have to become a buddhist you have to convert to my way of life he's saying these are some of the principles outlined embraced by human beings a long time ago and since then followed by hundreds of millions of people and they have been hugely hugely important in making possible contented lives so you have to think about this as an alternative to these stressed out intolerable lives that you're leading out there which is causing all kinds of psychological disorders so i think you know when you start thinking about it in these pragmatic ways when you shed this baggage of religious tradition or spiritual tradition when again you think about the basic building blocks of human society compassion and solidarity those resources you can find in many different religious traditions including those in the west i think it's really important yes. to 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 realize that western europe united states is itself full of those vital traditions When you talk about the basic building blocks of human society you're also of course talking about the basic building blocks of a human being and uh, that if these energies these humors these components of a human being include compassion kindness community togetherness union union a yearning at least for the, for the uh, latter few things i mentioned then these are uh, uh, <clears throat> perhaps a favorable resource to underwrite underwrite our social systems compared to the sort of individualism that, that has become rampant and is leading to deterioration there's something i've brought up several times in this podcast i'd like to know what you think about it in the moment prior to indian independence from britain Gandhi said that there's no point in us replacing the British merely to emulate them and to maintain their systems I'm sure you're aware and as he said he spoke sort of like kind of 60 70 years ago whenever it was said like that you know that this is a country of 70,000 villages all of them should be perhaps interdependent but autonomous and free and and he said that sort of like that you know so we talked in a way about sort of a decentralized social system and he also talked about like and I've not mentioned this as much some but he said people will have to 
to some degree let go of their need for commodification, their need to consume. And it seems sort of, again, sort of uh, eerily perspicacious to hear someone talk about you can't be obsessed with your iPhone for half a century prior to that kind of technology being available. But it seemed to me very pertinent that there is that, that we have to let go. This narrative of progressivism that keeps coming up is aligned to the liberal idea of individual freedom, which is aligned to consuming to make yourself happy. And at some point where the rubber meets the road, individual human beings like me, and you said earlier, we are sort of prisoners of comfort, addicted to the privileges that the last 20, 30 years has afforded us. At some point, does it, it boils down to uh, us saying we've got to just have less stuff and we've got to let go of it. It's not working for us. And that might be a component of building different kind of, kinds of societies. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, socialism for a long time carried many of the impulses left over from faded Christianity, mm-hmm. feeling of compassion, uh, charity, justice. When socialism was realized in certain countries, again, because socialism became all about material growth, material progress, mm. these values were systematically disregarded. But I think it's really important to marry socialist ideas, primarily those of compassion, equality, justice, to this regard for the environment, nature, recognition of the kind Gandhi had very early on in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, he was sort of early figure of the green movement that the earth does not have enough resources to fulfill all the greedy desires we have for a, a, a gadget-filled or amenities-filled life. That yes. we have to learn and practice the virtue of renunciation. Yes. That that is a very, very important wow. uh, uh, value for the society we live in. And again, this is not someone talking in the vacuum. This is someone, and this is an aspect of him that's neglected. This is someone who has lived in three continents mm. before the First World War. He's lived in Africa, he's lived in India, he's lived in Europe. This is a man with a wide experience of a world that is being globalized during his time. He He understands that this model... It's essentially is premised on violence. Yes. He can wow. see that because he's living under imperialism. He sees the violence is at the core of this whole process. And that is why India cannot afford to follow this path. And, and you know, he, he, he did say that uh, we don't want to essentially uh, replace rule by rule of the Englishman by English Raj, you know. So we need to think again about what kind of society we want for ourselves. Because following this model of endless growth, consumption-oriented growth, is going to lead us into an impasse. This concealed violence, uh, this, uh, the necessity of this model to conceal its means and its motives is something addressed by Marxist theory and it's I suppose predicated simply on the idea that you can't have limitless growth if you've got limited resources in the end this will or not even in the end cyclically this will lead to crisis so capitalism at its heart needs to conceal both its means and its motives Um, that 
at its core, there is a kind of nihilism, like that. Well, we don't care. We're just going to carry on doing it. Doesn't matter. Don't think about it. Sort of a sort of a weird psychopathic uh, modus operandi. Um, it's interesting to me that you sort of spoke of a kind of an emergent sense of nihilism and the despair that we experience as a result of this nihilism, uh, because precisely because we are beginning to experience while continue while we're continue while the lie is sort of still sort of propped up whether by quantitative easing or a, a compliant media new yeah. iphone upgrade yeah 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 I, i mean i take them whenever they're offered no. <laughs> another one no, iphone 10 now yeah the, the, the it continues to be concealed so uh what what i'm asking i suppose is like that Where will where do you like you you're say, you're saying that it will lead to impasse, but it's perhaps likely that this rage will lead somewhere darker. Do you where do you envisage it leading? Well, you know, in many ways, um, the solutions to many of the problems that exist today—political problems, economic problems, inequality, dysfunction—they're pretty obvious. If you diagnose the problem correctly, the problems, the 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 prescriptions or the solutions would, would emerge naturally from that. The problem really is the, whether anyone or any party, any movement has the political will to do it. The establishment at present, whether in, in, in Europe or in America, I do not think it's capable of charting a new path, of leading us out of this impasse. Much depends on social movements, on political movements, on the energy intellectual dynamism of young people mm. who are entering public life for the first time with new ideas, with no prejudices, no fantasies about themselves, about their imperialist past and, mm. and, 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 and what their ancestors achieved in the Second World War and so on. And these are people that we should look towards. I mean, I feel that my generation was a, was a failure. Um, I mean, I'm in now um, uh, approaching my... my uh, um, late 40s, and I feel that my generation was too much enthralled to these notions of universal progress and growth that started to be, be globalized back, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And it's a generation that has not been intoxicated by this kind of thinking. Yes, that the really, experience of it is yeah. different, is, yeah. very, is very distinct. One should never underestimate the power of a generation to remake, or young generation to remake the world. Curious that identity and uh, fluidity uh, appear to be sort of a determining component of the younger generation that they don't want to be labeled they don't, you know, around sexuality and identity there is a sort of there is a sort of a new fluidity that bodes well for transitioning and change on a social and political level. I think level. it's fantastic I mean I think you know all our rigid categories um, masculine feminine for instance I mean we've been we've been experiencing now for the last um, few months this sort of explosion of um, stories about this whole culture of oppression that has existed in the heart of the modern world. Again, something that used to be blamed exclusively on Islam or religion, wow. the oppression of women, the exploitation of women. Wow. And, and now we see wow. a, it, 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 this pathology existing. Right in right the in, heart, in the citadel. Absolutely. Uh, within corporate cultures, you know. And I think what 
it is telling us that a uh, lot of this oppression is systemic. These it's premised on these rigid separations of of you know masculine roles, feminine roles, and this identity blurring and fluidity that we see today is an attempt, whether it's deliberate or not. It's certainly very admirable. Is trying to transcend these categories that actually create oppressive conditions for for many many people. That's a brilliant insight. Thank you very much. Um, let me ask you a few more sort of uh, questions that that relate to your work and sort of bring us to look pretty salient. Uh, <clears throat> we t touched on the term resentment. Am I saying it correct? I really like that. Um, What's uh like? Can you unpack the Kierkegaard aspect of that? That it's a term that Kierkegaard used, and how it relates to terrorism. I think you know, um, for Kierkegaard, ressentiment was something that emerges when individuals are made to think that they are equal, while at the same time they confront the fact, the brute fact of structural inequality. So it's this collision between the feeling that you're equal, that you all have the same opportunities, that you are on the same social level. And then you encounter the fact that some people are much better off, that there are structural injustices at work, historical injustices at work that make some people more privileged mm. than others. He diagnosed this as a problem peculiar to modern society because societies in the past did not uphold equality as an ideal or as a value. These were hierarchical societies mm. in the past. You know, They did not think about instituting equality as an ideal. It's modern society that thinks of equality as a central ideal. But at the same time, because of the process of industrialization, because of all these other things that start to happen in the 19th century, and Kierkegaard is writing in the 19th century, in the mid-19th century, he can see that there's a contradiction opening up between the promise of equality, between the promise of freedom, and the growth of institutions that deny people equality and freedom. And it's in that denial that the feeling of resentment germinates. Oh, brilliant. So he identified a fundamental contradiction. Absolutely. absolutely. So did Rousseau, although he did not use the word horizontimo, uh, but he, 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 he did point to some central contradictions in the modern project, that what we are trying to achieve will not be achieved because there, are some, there is something just intrinsically contradictory about pursuing equality in a society where competition, vanity, imitation are values and ideals. These values uh, I find personally very punishing and I experience all of them quite deeply. Vanity it plays a big role in my life and has done and it's something I'm very aware of and I'm trying to diminish its role. Competition is not a good feeling to feel I'm not good enough, I have to be better than these people. These these models, I exp when I like because one of the reasons I started doing this 
uh, podcast is because I go to the SOAS University in London doing a degree in religion in global politics. Oh, really? Yeah, and at the moment I'm doing a module of uh, sort of the the roots of the traditions of yoga. So it's looking at a lot of Vedic texts, Upanishads, etc. And whenever I'm listening to the lectures or reading about it, and I sort of have been doing this generally across the course, I feel like, what does this matter to me now? What do these values mean to me right now in this room, in this world, on this planet, in these systems right now? Because you know, I can see the impact of vanity. I can see the failure of narcissism. I'm experiencing it. I'm experiencing the failure of consumerism. I'm seeing the way that I'm inhibited and limited by these ideas. A moment ago, you said, like, if you correctly diagnose the problem, then the prescription becomes obvious, which is a pretty cool catchphrase, actually. I reckon you should start pushing that. Uh, and like, so um, what, what, what do you diagnose as the problem? And is it, like, with all of these complexities and uh, uh, on the scale that we now live with, which is, you know, global, globalization, whether you regard it as pejorative as it now generally is, or positive as it was just sort of 10, 15 years ago, how, do, how does one come up with a central universal solution? Well, there probably isn't a central universal solution. I mean, I think uh, it's probably a mistake to look for a central universal solution right now because the problem you could say was in thinking that there is a universal model of progress. The fact that all of us, wherever we are, have to devise ideas, solutions for our societies connected to real experience of our circumstances, of the actual physical, geographical, political, historical conditions that we inherit. This can only mean forms of devolution. Decentralization. Yes. You know, it, it, the, the implications of this diagnosis extend in, 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 in many different realms. Um, so, you know, politically, we have to think more about decentralization. We have to think about people being empowered people feeling that they are in control of their lives. So what do you make of people like on the left that say that without some form of dominant state power, there will the, 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 the idea of anarchy as a, a, a pejorative and negative state emerges? Like, the, you know, when I sort of say, look, because for a while in some of these conversations, I've got, it seems like, the, like our, our requirements and our needs are so diverse. We need the power to be as close as possible to the people that are affected by that power. People should run their own workplaces, their own hospitals, their own schools, their own communities. And power should be devolved, decentralized, wherever possible. The, what I've, the feedback I've had from sort of, I suppose, you know, traditional leftist thinkers and some people that I very much respect and admire is that without some authority, some sort of state authority, without some kind of central power, these projects will fail. Can you? Explain I can understand. That to me? I can understand that concern because you know um, something that has been uh, said over and over again in the last twenty, thirty years of neoliberalism is that the state needs to step back. Mm. And let's essentially society be governed according to market principles. Yes. So there is very good reason to be suspicious of that argument, which wants to roll back the role of government in protecting the weak and the vulnerable. Yes, yes. And giving ceding power to market forces. And we know who benefits from, from uh, the free play of market forces. At the same time, I think uh, history has shown repeatedly that states, when invested with too much power, turn into oppressive, impersonal bureaucracies. 
That is the experience of many communist states, Eastern European states. And so we have to be careful. We have to strike a balance between a state that is responsive to its citizens, that doesn't acquire an autonomous life, that doesn't start living for itself. So we have to, there has to be a role for the state. At the same time, citizens have to feel that the decisions they are taking, the people they are choosing uh, as their representatives are responsive to them, that they are in a politically functional society. I think what we have today is a deeply dysfunctional political society. Yes, evidently. What do you think of like uh, n- new heroes of the left uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn this country uh, Bernie Sanders I don't know if that's relevant anymore in America or would be in the next election cycle or if that's already something that's over and done with uh, but uh, do, do you think that within the conditions the democratic conditions as we currently find them that they would be able to represent people's interests this is recent like Jeremy Corbyn saying Morgan Stanley should be afraid you know like do you, do you think that there is to coin the or to use the name of the movement the back's Corbyn, genuine momentum in that direction. Do you think that within, within democracy as we have it in this country that, that, that he would be empowered to take uh, action in that direction? You know, I think I'm more interested in, in the movements than, than in actual personalities. Yes. I think it's uh, remarkable that within a few months a massive movement consisting largely of uh, very young people, politicized young people came together and became a huge presence in uh, British politics. That to me is more important than, you know, the, the, the play of individuals. I mean, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is, a, is an important figure in that he was the one who crystallized a popular feeling, a feeling that was not being articulated by, certainly not the press, uh, not by our commentators. Uh, he managed to recognize that a lot of people in this country were ready for change, for new ways of thinking. Now, whether he is politically successful or not, the important thing is that he's already created a movement, he's already affected a dramatic shift in how people think about what should be done here. Yes, but part of my question, Pankaj, is what within democracy as we currently experience it, as it exists now, would a political party led by Corbyn or someone of a similar sensibility be able to enact the will of the people or would there be too much bureaucratic and systemic resistance? And and it does the the state with the, the have sufficient power to confront e.g. transnational corporations. You know, the odds are stacked against um, anyone trying to affect any movement, any individual trying to affect radical change in this society, especially, which is a very conservative society, uh, where all kinds of ancient powers are entrenched. Unlike most societies in Europe, which experienced a revolution, experienced uh, some kind of national upheaval that overturned the old order, introduced new elements, we have to recognize that Britain never really had a revolution. So Britain, pretty unique, you think? It's extremely, I mean, it's it's singular. Because Russia had one, singular, France had absolutely. one. The Americans had one. What did you uh, watch Germany's then, the failure of the Second World War? Well, Ger- Germans went through all kinds of traumas, you know, even, even before the uh, Second World War. So 
first one weren't very good. You know, no, I mean, they, they, they had to unify. They had to sort of create a nation state in the first place in, in, the, in the 19th century. Uh-huh. Britain is really unique. And one reason British politics has been so different from everywhere else, why it has remained conservative for such a long time and why, you know, a certain kind of English upper class landowning aristocracy still exercises enormous influence here. This is unprecedented, really unprecedented um, in, in, in the entire world. You wow. can't think of any other country with that kind of institutional power invested in traditional elites. How fascinating. So it's a, we're in a unique society. So, so this is why this is why someone, you know, uh, venturing on a radical project of political economic transformation is up against it. I mean there's no point in 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 you know uh, being overly optimistic about it. One has to recognize that there are formidable challenges ahead. Do you think that the role of religion may be as, if not more, important as politics as we understand it in any significant social change? Well, if you're talking about Britain, you know, the role of religion has been declining uh, so dramatically, so rapidly, that one can't really think of it as a, as a sort of political factor, really, anymore. Religion remains uh, alive in other societies. But unfortunately, once religion is mobilized as a political force, then it turns into ideology. Then it moves away from what we were talking about earlier, this belief in a transcendental authority, which in many ways is a source of consolation, a source of peace. Uh, it, it, it pacifies many people. It makes them more kind and compassionate. But when religion is used as an ideology, as a way of mobilizing people, it is inevitably a recipe for conflict because then what people want to do is to say, well, this community or this particular group does not belong. Yes. Is, isn't conflict and violence, <clears throat> isn't conflict certainly and violence, regrettably, a necessary component in radical change? Probably not violence. You know, there are there are instances of societies which have recovered from great violence and rebuild themselves through largely nonviolent means. There has been conflict. Inevitably, there will be conflict because the old guard is 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 not going to let go of its power. I mean, you know, power never really concedes anything unless you make stern demands on it. So. There is inevitably going to be conflict. But violence, um, I think violence can unleash a cycle where we will you know, continue to employ violent means to pursue our ends and inflict more and more damage on the social fabric of society. I mean, this, is, you know, this has been the experience of many societies which have had violent revolutions and undermined themselves and took a long time for them to recover from that kind of primal violence. Nonviolence as a method for protest. For you know, when you're talking about sort of the old guard and the resistance of the old guard, you can, you can see that oh, there's these entrenchment and you said ancient powers. But in this country, you're referring to, but you know, you can see sort of 
even modern authority that refuses to yield uh, in, like the one of the you said like the last time there was sort of huge civil uh, unrest like uh, around identity politics around sort of, around sort of empowerment of youth or a demand for change different ideas was the 60s and we saw like you know that non-violence was a huge component of that i suppose because in in a way because it would probably because of the infusion of sort of different uh, eastern mystical Martin Luther King and, and the influence on Martin Luther King of Gandhi very direct and explicit and expressed and uh and and i suppose because it was being counterposed with such obvious domestic violence in the united states against the african american population in uh, violence on the young men and women that were being sent to vietnam to fight so i suppose it seemed like an uh, evident and obvious antidote i wonder if uh i wonder if you can envisage mass movements towards decentralization there's something sort of contradictory about it like that people coming together achieving solidarity to demand the right to be autonomous to demand the dismantling of centralized interest institutions that prevent people having real purchase real power real purpose you know there are instances of um, movements for decentralization which turn into secessionist movements sometimes inevitably such as um catalonia um people a lot of people in hong kong for instance they want the freedom to run their own affairs um you would you could argue that large numbers of people in scotland want to be free of a country that is hurtling down a disastrous path uh, disastrous path to its brexit so right now we see more secessionist tendencies you know which are a kind of replacement for a movement a substitute secessionist that means what just sort of breaking away from existing nation state structures and forming an independent sovereign nation state why that Brexit... doesn't pro- doesn't solve the problem of centralization now, and why like under those terms couldn't brexit be regarded as quite a positive thing if we're talking about decentralization or do you see the european union as a largely benevolent in confronting sort of economic power you know there, there was a very good case to be made from the left for brexit yes i've always believed that um it was never made nobody mm-hmm. bothered to make it um the fact that um britain should exercise greater sovereignty and should not have decisions made by mobile global capital you know i think we have to understand the impulse um behind these apparently calamitous phenomena like brexit or trump uh, which is essentially people really do want to take back control yes <laughs> the people promising control to them happen to be at this point demagogues mm. who are interested in expanding their own power and those of their cronies this does not mean that the platform that they fought on which was the idea of taking back control is not hugely attractive yes. to large numbers of people who really do genuinely want to take back control who do want to be empowered who do not want their lives to be determined by the impersonal abstract forces of of capital they do want to be repoliticized their societies to be repoliticized that uh, and 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 want economic imperatives or indeed the imperatives of profit corporate profits to override human values human considerations but 
if it's if 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 the far right or the demagogues, if they are the only ones channeling this energy towards their own ends, then we end up with these in these situations uh, that we are in right now. I really think that's a, a very optimistic analysis, but I don't mean a romantic analysis. I think it's quite pragmatic and quite powerful. Uh, uh, thank you. I, uh, I appreciate that. But when you were saying that if you diagnose the problem correctly, then the prescription becomes obvious. And if indeed we are living in, let me quote you the, the title of your book, Age of Anger, then compassion is necessarily the prescription, compassion for one another. So I think that, you know, both for on a, from a spiritual perspective and from a practical political perspective, I think I've learned a great deal from this conversation and I can envisage, I, I really understood a story there, a philosophical story, a historical narrative in ways that I haven't before. And it, it gave me cause for optimism. And, you know, I've never been a person that saw Brexit as a wholly oh, negative thing. I, Because of the background I come from, I have a different attitude towards that sort of the That's idea of what yeah. Brexit might mean and what people might have meant when they said it. And that take back power, take back control as an impulse needn't necessarily be uh, aimed at like because we hate this group of people or because we hate that group of people. Uh, thank you very much for explaining that to me. Thank you. That's been a, a wonderful conversation. I really Pan enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah, me too, man. Thanks. Pankaj Mishra, thank you very much for uh, coming in here. Thanks for participating in Under the Skin. I really enjoyed that. Likewise. Good, wasn't it? Yeah, I very much enjoyed that. There we go. That show was sponsored by my book, Recovery, which is available now. You can order it on Amazon. Also get the audio book off Audible. It's pretty good. And also come and see me on the Rebirth Tour. A lot of these ideas are presented in succinct, amusing, sometimes disgusting ways. Leicester, December the 6th. Newcastle, 14th of December. Brixton, December the 19th. And that's it. And that'll be it for the year. Brrr. So uh, go to russellbrand.com if you want tickets for that. And finally, just to trouble you a little bit more, just to wring a bit more out of your life. If you like this show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes or wherever you get it and give it five stars because it helps us to get better advertising and stuff like that. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.